Welcome to What Happens Next. My name is Larry Bernstein. What Happens Next offers listeners an in-depth analysis of the most pressing issues of the day. Our experts are given just six minutes to present, and this is followed by a question and answer period for deeper engagement. I think you will find this discussion to be both informative and provocative. This program is moderated to be politically neutral. Our speakers will give their opinions, and then we encourage you to make up your own mind. This week's topics include the next world war, COVID vaccines, farm to table, citizenship, and our dumbest generation. Our first presenter today is retired Admiral James Stevritis, who is the former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and former Dean of the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts. The Admiral released this week his co-authored book, 2034, a novel of the next world war. This fictional work describes a confrontation a confrontation between the United States and China that begins in the South China Sea. I want to hear from the Admiral the lessons learned from this fictional war game. Our second speaker is Dr. Paul Offit, who is the director of the Vaccine Education Center at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania. Paul will be discussing the latest developments in the ongoing COVID vaccination program. Our third speaker is Robert Parlberg who is the Emeritus Professor of Political Science at Wellesley College and an associate at Harvard's Sustainability Science Program. Robert recently published his book, Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. We will hear that industrial farms will be producing most of our food going forward and that this product will not meet the organic criteria. That said, this might be for the best. Our final speaker today is Mark Bauerlein, who is an Emeritus Professor of English at Emory and is the author of the book, The Dumbest Generation, how the digital age stupefies young Americans and jeopardizes our future, or don't trust anyone under 30. I want to learn from Mark if the trend towards idiocy is ongoing and if COVID has accelerated it. All right, that is our agenda for today's session. Let's begin with re retired Admiral James Stavridis. Admiral, go ahead. Admiral, you may be on. Uh, Thank you very on. much. People ask me frequently these days, why would you write a novel about a world war between the U.S. and China? And the answer, in one sense, lies in the past. Take a look at the Cold War between the United States and the Soviet Union. Somehow, we managed to avoid blowing up the world. Part of how we did it was that we could imagine how terrible a world war between the U.S. and the Soviet Union, fought with nuclear weapons, might be. Think of Dr. Strangelove, the Bedford incident, Failsafe, the Third World War by Sir John Hackett. These were all works of imagination, novels, fiction that depicted what that war would be like. And my belief is that by writing this novel, 2034, a novel of the next world war, I can help all of us imagine how awful this might be, how we could stumble into it what the ladder of escalation might look like, and ultimately the hope would be that we could then, if you will, reverse engineer it and avoid this outcome. Think about some of the big disasters that have struck the United States of America over the last 70, 80 years, going back to the Second World War. If only we could have imagined Pearl Harbor coming. If only we could have imagined 9-11 coming. Who could have imagined a 20-year war in Afghanistan, or most recently, of course, a year ago, 
Could you have imagined what we are dealing with today in the pandemic? Probably not. So the question is, how realistic is it that we could simply stumble into a war with China that really is in neither nation's interest? Unfortunately, it is a real possibility. If you look at the basket of disagreements between the United States and China, they're big and they're getting bigger. Think about the dispute over who owns the South China Sea, a vast body of water the size of the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico, which China claims in its entirety. The opening scene of 2034, a novel of the next world war, is set in the South China Sea. Uh, what about cyber activity? Uh, what about intellectual property theft? The way Hong Kong is being treated, the Uyghur human rights questions within China, the disputes over 5G, Taiwan, a thriving and independent entity, which China would very much demand become part of its loving embrace. Um, we disagree, we the United States, with all of those positions. And we see China increasing its military capability relentlessly. It may surprise many of the listeners to know China has more warships today than the United States of America. Ours are better. We have more capability. We have a, a greater global presence. But ton for ton of warships, and especially if they're all packed into the South China Sea, big challenges for the U.S. Navy. So China's preparing for some kind of conflict, and we are as well. And then the novel also looks at some of the other great powers. How will Russia play in this particular uh, game of thrones, if you will? We're seeing Russia and China draw closer and closer together. Their ships operate routinely, not just in the North Pacific, but in the Baltic Sea, in the heart of Europe. The last time uh, they conducted military exercises on their mutually shared Siberian border, it was the largest military exercise since the end of the Cold War. And of course, it's not just Russia. What about Iran? What will Iran's role be? Um, the second set piece that opens 2034, a novel of the next world war, is an Iranian activity that forces down an American jet. How can that come about? And then finally, as we look at great powers in the novel, what about the role of India? I know Larry often asks about things that are optimistic going on in the world today. I, for one, am cautiously optimistic about the rise of India because it's a democracy, because it enjoys an enviable geographic position in the heart of the Indian Ocean because it has a long history and culture, because it's already connected in many ways with the West. So those are kind of some snapshots of what happens in the novel. And I'll conclude my very brief opening statement with the idea of, okay, Admiral, you've convinced me, I hope, by the time you're done reading 2034, that we should avoid a world war with China at all costs. How do we do that? What are the tools we can use that allow us to avoid that war? One of them is what we're talking about right now. It's reading, study, learning, education. Believe me, China understands us better than we understand China.
we have work to do. We need a strong military deterrent capability, but less about those traditional platforms, more about cyber, unmanned vehicles, space, hypersonics. We need that credibility and capability. Secondly, or thirdly, we need allies, partners, and friends. We need to build coalitions so we can create balance against the rising strength of China. Again, without pushing them into a corner, without walking into a war through an ill-understand policy, but shaping the globe with our network of allies, partners, and friends, NATO, Japan, Australia, New Zealand, on and on. Lastly, the private sector has a significant role to play here because our economies are intertwined. Look, we know from World War I, the experience of economies and nations that are deeply intertwined economically in Europe and are intertwined by blood marriage of the royal families, yet they managed to get into a world war. So it would be incorrect to say that, well, our economies are really together and therefore it's unlikely we'll end up in a global war. But the converse can be true. It, it is possible that there are private-public cooperation zones that the U.S. and China could work in. For example, climate, preparation for the next pandemic. Well, I'll close and turn it over to Larry by simply observing there are dangerous times ahead. If you look at human history going back 2,500 years and you have read anything of the works of Graham Allison, my good friend and mentor at the Kennedy School, you'll understand that there's a looming Thucydides trap, as it's called. So often in human history, when an established power is challenged by a rising power, a global war ensues. It goes all the way back to Athens and Sparta. I'm Greek-American, so I'm allowed to know my Greek history. But it goes back just 100 years ago. Established power, Great Britain, rising power, the Kaiser's Germany, World War One, and you can drop a plumb line to World War Two. That's what we need to avoid. And I think by imagining our way into the future, we have our best chance of avoiding that kind of horrific outcome. That's the purpose of the novel, 2034, a novel of the next world war. Larry, back to you. Thanks, Admiral. A um, couple points to open up with. Uh, we had Graham Allison uh, discuss the Thucydides trap uh, on the program a few months ago, and I wanted to open up with that. You know, China is obviously a major growing power, uh, and it has certain objectives uh, in its political and military perspective. Given the changing power dynamic, how do we encourage China to, I'll say, behave in a way that it doesn't threaten our allies uh, and encourage them to find a non-military solution to their political hopes and desires. Yeah, we, we begin by understanding their strategy and using empathy, which is one of the uh, least used, unfortunately, tools in diplomacy. Put yourself in the shoes of the other. And what you see is China, which wants to continue to feed its very successful economy with raw materials and then export finished goods. This is called sometimes one belt, one road. It has two paths. One goes across the land to the north, the other through the Indian Ocean to the south. China will seek to expand that route. 
they will seek influence all along it. This is why they are purchasing or leasing ports, for example, all along that route. So number one, Larry, we need to understand what China is doing and try and put ourselves in their shoes. Number two, create a strategy. This is where I would fault the Trump administration. They attempted to engage with China. They had a pretty clear-eyed view about some of the challenges. That's good. But they never developed a coherent strategy. I would argue what the Biden team must do is create a strategy that integrates military, diplomacy, political activity, strategic communications, economics, and in particular, that strategy needs a very strong component of engagement. So it's a good thing that the senior Biden cabinet officials will be meeting this coming week in Alaska with senior officials from China. Um, Third, and I'll stop here because we could eat up the entire time with this, but third, here's the basics of the strategy in my view. Confront where we must, cooperate wherever we can. So we have to confront on the South China Sea. We can't simply turn that over to China as territorial waters. My view, we have to confront China on gross human rights violation, for example, in the treatment of the Uyghur population. We have to confront China when they uh, push on India in the Himalayas at the top of the world. We have to confront where we must, but we should cooperate where we can. The two examples I gave earlier are perhaps the best opportunities, climate, pandemic preparation, because there will be another pandemic. So this is a subject that could take up hours of conversation, but there's a quick snapshot of how I view it. You mentioned um, China's objectives is to feed its economy with raw materials. You know, if you go back to World War II, um, the Japanese wanted to feed their economy with raw materials as well, and the Americans put themselves in a position to prevent Japan from feeding its economy with raw materials, which led inexorably towards war. Um, is that a lesson to be learned that we sh- when we have a disagreement, we shouldn't put pressure on the raw material supplies? I think the lesson to be learned, and by the way, what you're discussing from the Japanese empire was what they called the East Asian co-prosperity sphere. And it, it was a strategy that had some similarities to what China is doing today. Um, the lesson, I think, is don't back your opponent into a corner. The the great military strategists in human history was Asian, Sun Tzu. He wrote the classic, short, very readable book on war. Sun Tzu is famous for saying, uh, the greatest victory you will ever attain is the battle you do not fight, is trying to outmaneuver your opponent, create alliances, uh, form patterns that draw your enemy where you want him to go. But Sun Tzu also said, Larry, went on death ground fight. And what we want to avoid is putting our opponents in a corner where they feel they are on death ground because then they surely will fight. That's what we need to avoid. In your novel, uh, one of the commanders, uh, Commander Hunt, um, is responsible for three battleships that end up getting destroyed. Uh, and there's a commission that is uh, to decide whether or not she should continue to get command. In your other work, you describe um, when Admiral Kimmel, who was in charge of Pearl Harbor, 
uh, there is a commission and you say that with this sort of loss of life and that what happened in Pearl Harbor, there was no chance that uh, Admiral Kimmel could ever uh, be given a command again. But here in your novel, Commander Hunt is given um, almost immediately uh, a very important uh, position in the Navy uh, on the front lines again. Is, is that possible once there's been a catastrophe for uh, an admiral or excuse me, or any commander to be given uh, command again in such a live arena? It depends on the disaster. So Pearl Harbor, you're absolutely correct. Admiral Husband Kimmel um, is the commander of the Pacific Fleet when the Japanese uh, conduct a surprise attack and destroy the entire fleet. Um, the work of the commission uh, came actually after he was relieved for cause. Um, President Roosevelt decided he no longer had confidence in Admiral Kimmel. Admiral Kimmel was a very senior four-star officer. Um, the heart of his responsibilities at Pearl Harbor was to run the entire U.S. Pacific Fleet and be ready for all eventualities that came along. Commodore Sarah Hunt, who is uh, in charge of three destroyers conducting a freedom of navigation patrol, is at a very different position in the Navy hierarchy. She's not even a one-star admiral, let alone a four-star admiral like Kimmel. She's a, a, a captain. She becomes a commodore when she takes responsibility for these three ships. Um, one of my great mentors, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Colin Powell, was asked once about second chances in the military. And he said that you have to give a general, you, 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 you can forgive a general at times for a general's mistakes. And you can forgive a captain for a captain's mistakes. What you cannot do is forgive the general for the captain's mistakes. What he meant by that is that, um, and in the case of Admiral Kimmel, when the mistakes are so big and the scale is so enormous, no, you cannot come back from that. When you're a much more junior officer and a mistake is made, and, and, and in the novel, you'd have to have a debate about whether Sarah Hunt actually makes a mistake or not. It's, a, it's an ambiguous situation. Um, she, I believe, would be, have been given a second chance. And, uh, and she is in the novel, and she survives to fight another day. We had uh, James Holmes uh, on the call a few months mm -hmm. ago uh, talk about containing the Chinese Navy, in particular, uh, what the operation would look like in the South China Sea. Mm -hmm. And as you said, what's unusual about it is it's on the Chinese border, so they'll have access to the mainland to protect that space uh, from the air and launching of missiles, etc. But the other hand, it, it is the Chinese mainland. Um, and so they're much more at risk. How do you think about um, the naval exercises that will be, go on in that space, um, as well as you know, the American desire to protect um, Taiwan from an invasion? Yeah, this is a very hard, pure military problem. And you put your finger on it. The Chinese in this scenario, if God forbid we ended up in a war with China, um, they have the, if you will, home court advantage. 
their logistic chains are effectively non-existent. They're, uh, all of their ports, all their logistics, their parts, their food supplies, their oil, gas, everything is right there on the mainland. Um, in addition to everything you just mentioned, Larry, they also have the ability to operate out to, I'm sure James talked about this, I know Professor Holmes quite well, uh, what's called the first island chain and the second island chain. These yeah, are okay. These are the island uh, chains, the wreaths of islands that kind of go from uh, Taiwan in the south up to Japan in the north, and the Philippines are the outer side of those rings. So uh, China is very capable of operating with a lot of ships, kind of flooding the zone, if you will, and covering it with hypersonic cruise missiles particularly potentially being directed from space. So it's a very hard military problem. Um, the best thing the United States can do is, uh, again, back to allies, partners, and friends, have access to these island chains so that we can have logistics support and be in close, um, put pressure on the Chinese forces before they can launch at us, and that becomes a very delicate dance because uh, this is one of the themes in 2034, the novel, is escalation. And just because you think, uh, as a warfighter, that you are acting in a very measured, careful, nuanced way, your opponent may not see it that way. Again, back to Sun Tzu, went on death ground fight. And when you cross a line and attack the homeland of an opponent, in my view, you really do cross a line, a pretty significant one, and that's part of how the story unfolds in 2034. Uh, so bottom line, no easy answers here. Um, need uh, capable cybersecurity, space, forces that can go forward, operate with allies, partners, and friends, and be prepared to act from strength if necessary. Again, this is what we want to avoid. You know, when I was in college, the primary textbook that we used in our political science class was John Lewis Gaddis's book called Strategies sure. of Entertainment. Mm -hmm. And in that book, Gaddis describes two different models to, uh, to deal with situations. He calls one the symmetric response and the other asymmetric response. In your novel, it seems that the Chinese engage in an asymmetric response. They choose mm -hmm. where, you know, where we're going to go at every time, where the Americans choose a more symmetric model where they meet, you know, one attack in a similar sort of way right back at you. Mm -hmm. what, um, what Gaddis argued was that this was um, a bad, uh, asymmetric was the better approach. And I'm wondering if we follow this war game through, um, are you suggesting that sym symmetry is probably a bad idea? Um, and I guess what I would say is, like, what do the Chinese desperately don't want? And I would put to you that I think an independent Taiwan is what they don't want. So if they start, if the Chinese start acting aggressively in the South China Sea, should the United States then move in a different direction, say, you know what we're going to do if you get aggressive, we're going to support an independent Taiwan, and we may even provide them with nuclear weapons so they can protect themselves. Is that a more appropriate response than direct military engagement? It is an asymmetric response. I know John Gaddis well, know the book well. In fact, I was with him uh, just before the pandemic up at Harvard, uh, excuse me, up at Yale. Um, I think that you're correct. 
China is using asymmetric approaches. Their way of war, if you will, comes from Sun Tzu. Sun Tzu was very much the asymmetric uh, approach. Um, Western powers tend to be Clausewitzian, meaning we are go right up the middle very frequently. And um, I think in this case, uh, asymmetry is a good thing to consider. Um, but I'm going to give you both a good and a very dangerous asymmetry. I'll start with a very dangerous. The very dangerous asymmetry is the one you suggest. Um, and an enormous red line for China is the status of Taiwan. And the more we become tempted to, quote, encourage them to independence, unquote, the higher the likelihood of actual combat between the two nations will go up. This is why for decades we've had a policy that's called strategic ambiguity, meaning we haven't declared that we will fight for the island of Taiwan. We kind of imply that we would look with uh, grave misgivings at any military um, move on Taiwan. And we have been very measured in the military defensive systems that we give Taiwan. Um, we sell to Taiwan, I should say. So I would say that is an asymmetric uh, threat to China that is very, very direct, and you would want to really only come to that in extremis, knowing that you are probably going to tip into active combat between the United States and China, and no one knows how that will come out, and that is also uh, something we explore in the novel 2034. Let me give you, a, a, I think, a good example of how the United States could be using asymmetry as we think about conflict in the South China Sea. It's how we use the U.S. Marine Corps. For the last 20 plus years, how have our wonderful almost 200,000 person Marine Corps been used? They've been used like a land army in Iraq and Afghanistan. They're, you can kind of take the Marine out of their name. They haven't really done anything from ships. Um, as we look at potential peer conflict with China, some of the most forward-thinking uh, mental uh, wargaming is being done by the United States Marine Corps, thinking about how they could get behind those island chains that Professor Holmes told you about, and operating from ships, hopefully very stealthy ships, very capable ships, um, conduct, if you will, special operations type activities at scale. That's an asymmetric response that I think is uh, less likely to drive us directly into the throes of a major war. Again, uh, pushing for Taiwanese independence, we ought to think of that as you know, behind the glass, reserve that for the ultimate emergency. You are correct in your assumption. That would certainly get China's attention, Larry. Um, a pretty different angle here. Um, I want to talk about the Battle of Midway for a second. So in 19, uh, I think it was 1943, when we were about uh, to engage in the Battle of Midway, uh, Admiral Nimitz uh, decided to throw all our aircraft carriers at Midway. And Admiral King, uh, back in Washington, thought this was a terrible idea because there would be nothing between uh, basically Hawaii and California to protect an attack against the mainland. And Roosevelt, you know, favored Nimitz and allowed the aircraft carriers to all go to Midway. I bring this story up because 
you focused that the engagement would probably be in the South China Sea. But if I were the Chinese, I might want to attack the mainland United States. So to what extent, as we think about our use of, of naval resources, how much do we have to preserve uh, to protect an, a direct attack against the United States mainland uh, versus containing the battle in, in, on China's side directly um, in the South China Sea and on Chinese borders? As we sit here today in 2021, I'd say the odds of China launching significant strikes on the United States kinetically, rockets, bombs, missiles, are quite low because they're attributable, because Chinese capability is somewhat limited to do so. Um, I think as you project forward to 2034, the year in which the novel is set, uh, the odds go up significantly, both kinetically, but most importantly, cyber. And without giving anything away, there's a significant cyber attack that changes the calculus along the lines of what you are talking about. So I would argue we need to protect ourselves certainly from kinetic attack. I would say by 2034, you know, roughly 15 years from now, um, the best way China could use asymmetric attack against us would be using cyber, particularly if they continue to stride ahead of us in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, machine learning, all these things potentially could tip that asymmetric balance against us in cyber. That's, I think, the real longer-term concern. We had John Mearsheimer on the call a few months ago, and we discussed um, the rising ch Chinese power. And I asked him what the role of Europe would be in this coming uh, South China Sea confrontation. And he said that the European countries had no power to project in the region and would, be, would prove irrelevant. Uh, as a former leader of, of NATO, uh, is, and in your own, uh, I wonder how you think about that, uh, the role of, of Europe in this sort of event. And in your novel, uh, Europe plays almost no, no, no factor. I'm just wondering, how do you think about Europe in the context of a, a confrontation in the South China Sea? I am uh, more or less with John Mearsheimer on this one. I think it's unlikely, particularly in the 15-year future, that the Europeans will want to uh, tangle with China. But that, again, is the whole point of writing the novel. What we don't want is what happens in the novel, where Europe is largely irrelevant. What we want is a strong, robust NATO. We want to see European defense spending uh, continue to increase. We want Europe to be able to forward deploy combat power. And by the way, the British uh, have built one and are building a second uh, large deck aircraft carrier. The French are building a new nuclear powered aircraft carrier. Um, Europe spends today about $300 billion a year collectively on defense. That's more than China spends. So I wouldn't dismiss them entirely. Uh, but again, in writing a cautionary novel, again, how we don't want things to come out, yeah, they don't play a very significant role in 2034. But we still have time to try and address that. And I think the best way to do it is to work closely with them. Uh, and I think you'll see the Biden administration do that. Admiral, thank you. Uh, we're going to move on to our second speaker now, and that is Dr. Paul Offit. 
He is the director of the Vaccine Education Center and attending physician uh, of the Infectious Disease Department at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. He is also a professor of pediatrics at the University of Pennsylvania Medical School. Dr. Offit, can you go ahead with a discussion about COVID and vaccines? Sure. So um, recently, it's become clear that the spread of SARS-CoV-2 virus, the virus that causes COVID-19, is lessening. I mean, there's clearly been a decline in the daily number of, of cases. There's been a de decline in hospitalizations and a decline in deaths. So the question is why? I think there are primarily two reasons. The first and arguably most important is the weather. This virus, SARS-CoV-2, is at its heart a winter respiratory virus. If you look carefully, actually, at the daily deaths that have been recorded since the outbreak of this, or the onset of this uh, outbreak, when the virus first came into this country and started to kill people at the beginning of March, it took off. And you had, you had at its peak about 2,500 deaths a day. But then as we moved into April, May, June, the number of deaths dramatically declined, even though we didn't have a vaccine and we still had a population that was largely susceptible. There were many days between May and uh, November where there were just hundreds of deaths, well, not just, but there were hundreds of deaths a day. Then what happened is once you hit November, there was a dramatic increase in cases, up to, to peaks of more than 4,000 deaths a day. Um, this, is, this is like many um, winter respiratory viruses. It is, it is uh, definitely influenced by weather, at least in temperate climates it is. It's, it's not, that's interestingly not so much true in tropical climates, where, for example, influenza is a winter disease in the United States. It is a year-round disease in Brazil. Uh, um, the human coronaviruses are winter diseases in the United States, but they're year-round diseases in Brazil. Same thing with the, a virus, an intestinal virus called rotavirus, is a winter disease in the United States, but year-round in Brazil. I think people get confused watching what's happening in Brazil, that, that heat and humidity don't matter. They do matter, and they certainly matter in temperate climates. So in any case, I think that's the, the main reason that you're seeing this virus um, come down. But it's not going to go away unless we get adequate population immunity um, over the summer, which is to say about 80% of the population being immune, um, it'll be back next winter, at least to some extent. The question that, that we have to answer for ourselves is to what extent, and that'll depend on the degree to which we can gain population immunity. The other issue, the other thing I think that, that works against this virus, in addition to weather, is the immunity that's being induced by natural infection. I mean, we currently state that 30 million people have been infected with this virus. But in fact, that's just people who have been tested and found to be infected. If you really want to know how many people have been infected, you need to do antibody surveillance studies to see who has antibodies to this virus and who doesn't. When you do those studies, you find that that 30 million number is probably off by a factor of around three. The CDC estimates that between 85 and 100 million people have actually already been exposed to and infected with this virus and are likely to be immune. The, the other thing that you have going, working against the virus is at least as of um, yesterday, about, about 100 million people, uh, I'm sorry, 100 million doses of COVID had been administered. About 60 million people had received at least one dose. About 33 million people have been received two doses. So a little more than 10% uh, of the population are now fully immune. So if you combine the immunity that's induced by natural infection with the immunity that's been induced by immunization, about 35% of the U.S. population is probably currently protected against this virus, which, which may be enough to actually start to, to, to contribute to the decrease. So, so what stands in the way of at least slowing the, um, the impact of this virus? I think there are two things. 
One is the variance, and, and let me just talk about um, that to define terms because it's often misunderstood, I think, by the way this is carried in the media. The virus that swept across China was not the virus that left China. The virus that left China was the first variant. It was called the D614G variant. That's the virus that swept across Europe. That's the virus that swept across the United States and South, uh, South America. Um, when we made vaccines, whether it was the Pfizer vaccine or the Moderna mRNA vaccines or the Johnson & Johnson vaccine or the UK AstraZeneca vaccine or the Novavax vaccine, all of those vaccines were designed to prevent the D614G variant. But this is a bat coronavirus that has just made its debut in November of 2019 in the human population. And, 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 and what it will do it will, is it will adapt to growth in people. As it adapts to growth in people, by definition, it will become more contagious. And that's happened with these, the UK variants, the South African variants, the, uh, the Brazilian variants, the California variant, most recently now the New York variant. Um, and so the question then, the critical question is, do these vaccines that were generated to prevent the D614G variant, do they also protect against disease caused by these other variants? And we do have some information on that. I think with confidence, we can say that the vaccine clearly protects against the UK variant, the so-called D117 variant, um, because we have data from, from at least Pfizer's mRNA vaccine that that's true. We also can feel confident from both uh, the, the Johnson & Johnson or Janssen, uh, which is, is it's, it, Janssen is the uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson that created this vaccine. Um, we, we have data from that trial, both in South Africa, where the South African variant is uh, predominant, more than 90% of the circulating strains are the South African variant, or the so-called uh, Brazilian variant, which is the P1 variant. We have information now, clear information, that you can protect against severe disease caused by the, the current vaccines, the Janssen vaccine protects against severe disease caused by both the South African and the Brazilian variant. That's also true for the Novavax vaccine, which hasn't been licensed yet in the United States or anywhere. That's a purified protein vaccine. Also was effective at preventing severe disease against the, uh, either the South African or the Brazilian strains. Uh, the other thing that stands in the way of getting to population immunity of around 80%, and you can see that this is not a made-up number. The, Israel now has exceeded 70% population immunity, and they, they are clearly seeing a decline in the spread of this virus, which is the first clear evidence of herd immunity. So I think I think 80% is, is doable. I think it's reasonable. The question is whether we can get there. And I think the, the, the thing that stands in the way of that, to me, more than the variants, is, is anti-vaccine activity. I mean, what is euphemistically referred to in the press as vaccine hesitancy, I think would more reasonably refer to, be referred to as vaccine denialism. There are a significant number of people who don't want to get this vaccine. And we don't really see that yet. We don't see it yet because we don't have enough vaccine for the people who want it. Um, but I think once we hit the summer, you're going to have a much better idea of what, um, what percentage of this population doesn't want to be vaccinated. And I fear it's going to be significantly more than 20 percent. Um, I, I get that feeling from a few things. One is that, that I think any of us who work in a hospital, I'm, I'm an attending physician at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, there are no doubt, I can promise you this, there are people in our hospital who don't want to get vaccinated. This, these are people who work in the medical system. It's also true at the hospital of the University of Pennsylvania. It's true really of any, any uh, hospital has had to deal with this. And these are medical professionals. There have been studies now that have been done um, 
looking at other factors, 14% uh, of those who are black or African-American say that they would choose not to get the vaccine. And then a surprising 46%, according to the recent CNN poll, of people who, uh, who identify themselves as Republicans also say that they choose not to get the vaccine. So I think we're going to be up against that. And then what do we do? I mean, if, if fantasies could come true, what I would like to see happen is I would like to see us do what Israel does, which is to have a basically a vaccine passport that once you've gotten vaccinated, you get a passport. And that if you're going to be able to go to a restaurant or a department store, you have to show your vaccine passport. Um, it works well in Israel. Um, I, I don't think it would work well here only because we're a country that's founded on the basis of individual rights and freedoms, which means that we are, are compelled to claim freedoms that really aren't ours to claim, like the freedom to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. Um, but uh, it'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I think that's where, where the, the, that's how you're going to see this war playing out um, over the, the, the summer months into the fall. So that's all I have to say, and thanks for your attention. Thanks, Paul. Uh, my first question relates to your comments about the variants, uh, that it's, you're not surprised that the variants are more contagious than the uh, original disease. Um, but are they more, uh, what about their severity? Um, I guess, would you expect them to be more severe or less severe over time, the, the variants themselves? What, what is common right. with most viruses? Right, so, so viruses need you to live. They need your cells to live. Uh, they, they can only reproduce themselves using the cellular machinery that is within, within each of our cells. It is, it is to the advantage of the virus to spread more uh, easily, to be more contagious. That's to the advantage of the virus. It's not to the advantage of the virus to be more virulent. I mean, so if, if you die from the, from the infection, then the virus can't, can't uh, go on to infect the next person. Um, so um, I think that the, the data on the UK variant are pretty good that it's, it's somewhat more virulent. It's clearly more contagious. Um, the, the data from all the other variants aren't, aren't, do not clearly show that they're more virulent. It really doesn't matter so much in terms of, of, of how we handle it. I mean, we still would make vaccines the way we're making it. We, it's still spread by, by small droplets that emanate from the respiratory tract. So you still want to mask and physically distance. So it doesn't really change what we're doing. But um, I think the UK variant is, is there. The data are that it clearly is more virulent. Although that is never to the advantage of the virus. Just following that up for a second, what's really unusual about this virus is you are infectious uh, before you show symptoms. So that was a clearly a very uh, interesting technique for the virus. And the second thing is that um, you're only contagious supposedly for approximately 10 days after you show your first symptom. Uh, but most people that die tend to die uh, way after the 10th day. And so that's a period of time where you're actually no more contagious. How do you think about this linkage between contagious and virulence in that context? Well, so you, you'd probably be surprised to know that most viruses um, are the, the principle of the, most of the shedding of that virus, the, your contagiousness is actually a day or two before you develop symptoms. So that's true for, for most viruses. Um, the, 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 because the virus reproduces itself, then you make an immune response. And your immune response is, is that's why you get symptoms. You, you get symptoms because of your immune response. The, the, what makes this virus so heinous, it's the same thing that really made poliovirus so heinous, is a large part of the spread is asymptomatic. So, so you don't know when you're coming in contact with someone whether they're sick or not. That was also true for polio. There's a lot of actually sort of parallels between this virus and polio. 
Um, only one of every 200 people who was infected with polio virus was actually um, would, would be paralyzed by that virus. Most people had, it was a mild summer uh, intestinal infection. And, and that's why it caused the fear it caused, because you never quite knew who had it. And, and I mean, I'm a child of the 50s, so I remember how my parents used to handle us. They never let us go to a public swimming pool over the summer. There was enormous fear that surrounded that. And that's this too. I mean, everybody who you see who looks perfectly well may be someone who is shedding that virus. So I think that, that and that's why SARS-1 and MERS were not a problem. The SARS-1 you know, came up in 2002 and really was gone two years later. MERS came up about 10 years later in 2012 and has been well controlled because virtually all of those infections, uh, people were moderately or severely ill. So it's much easier to put a, a moat around those people who were infected and stop spread. Just following that up, um, polio killed or injured children. Uh, this disease appears not to do so. How do you feel about um, vaccinating kids who may transmit it but not get sick? Um, and as a public policy standpoint, you're looking for ways to mandate uh, requirements for vaccines. How would you feel about a government mandate that every kid that goes to public school must have uh, a COVID vaccine? even though it doesn't directly hurt them. And maybe as a follow-up, do you think that the variants um, will start to negatively affect kids who've gone so far uh, unaffected? Well, um, here's what I would say. You're, you're certainly right that 92% of the deaths from this virus are in people over 55 years of age. If you look at, at, a, at a population in the United States that's less than 21 years of age, that makes up 26% of the population, but 0.08% of the deaths. Nonetheless, I think that you, you, children are going to need to be immunized uh, for a number of reasons. One, if you look at the, the percentage of the population that's less than 18, that's 22% of the population. If we're going to get to my 80% mark, which I, a lot of people have, have uh, underlined, um, you are going to have to immunize at least older children. Um, and children can die from this virus. I mean, the, the number of children, at least as of a few days ago, who had died of COVID-19 last year was around 174. That's about the number that die from influenza every year. Uh, usually between 150 and 200 children die every year from influenza, um, and we have an influenza vaccine for children. Plus, you know, children can, um, can develop an unusual uh, disease called MIS-C, which is this multi-system inflammatory disease of children, um, which can be quite devastating and fatal. Uh, you know, we at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, we have a COVID ward. Most of the children in that COVID ward have this unusual multi-system inflammatory disease, which can also be associated with shock. So I think any disease that can cause children to suffer or be hospitalized or, and die that, um, that can be prevented safely should be prevented. Currently, the, the Pfizer, Moderna, Johnson & Johnson have already, I think, finished enrolling down to 12 years of age. So we should have those data. And frankly, I think the vaccine will be available by the summer for children down to 12 years of age. They're now recruiting children down to six years of age to do basically so-called immunobridging studies. You're not going to do big efficacy studies because they would have to be really big because not, you know, the percentage of children who get sick is smaller. But I think that by the end of the year, we would have a vaccine that would be available to down to six years of age. Regarding mandating the vaccine, I think it would be hard to mandate a product which was approved through emergency use authorization, which basically, I mean, I'm on the FDA's vaccine advisory committee. That's basically the same thing as getting permission to give an experimental new drug. That's what, that's what that is. That said, um, Janet Woodcock, who now is the acting director of the FDA, she's the sort of commissioner of the FDA, has said that she expects that these companies, specifically the mRNA companies and uh, Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson Johnson, would likely be submitting for 
uh, a biologics license application, which is to say a licensure by the summer, which would make it easier, I think, to, to do that. But do I think, I, I think in a better world, you wouldn't have to mandate vaccines. It would be very clear that vaccines offer uh, protection safely. But, you know, we live in a country where um, we somehow consider it to be our right not to do that or not to wear a mask. Somehow we've been able to make this virus political, which is remarkable because I don't think that's ever happened for a virus before. Um, but I think um, I feel this way about mandates in general. It's, it's too bad that we have to mandate it, but we do. I think sometimes people have to be compelled to do the right thing. We compel people to put children in car seats. We compel people to, uh, to wear seatbelts. In New Jersey, it's click it or ticket. You know, we compel people to stop at stop signs. I mean, there are things that you do that affects others. And when people get on television and talk about how it's their right not, not to, to get a vaccine, they're not just talking about themselves. They're talking about everyone with whom they come in contact. It is not your inalienable right as a U.S. citizen to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. And that's been to the Supreme Court twice. Um, but for the first 1905 with the Jacobson v. Massachusetts case, the second time in 1922 with the Zucks v. King case, the public, the public health communities can compel vaccination in the face of outbreaks. Do you think other countries will start to mandate children to go back to school? So we'll learn from those other countries? You mentioned how aggressive Israel is. If they're already at 70%, you know, children have to be a substantial part of that population. Are the Israelis vaccinating children? Um, or do you expect uh, other countries to, to go that route and that we can learn from their experiments? Yeah, to my knowledge, Israel has only been vaccinating adults. We'll see. We, we tend to be the, com the country that mandates more. Um, as general rule, European countries don't do that. Um, I'm talking about the United Kingdom, you know, Austria, Germany, et cetera. The, the Scandinavian countries also don't mandate vaccines and have extremely high immunization rates. I mean, like in the, you know, mid 90% range. I mean, it's, it, these are countries, um, you know, like Denmark and Norway and et cetera, that, um, that actually trust their, their medical uh, community. They trust their public health community. They believe that they're trying to do the right thing by them. And so they get vaccinated without that, without mandates. So I, I think we probably are going to be the first ones to mandate. And I suspect if mandates do happen, I think they will happen. It'll be mostly come from the private sector initially uh, for adults that, that if you're going to come back to work in this office, um, you know, where a lot of people are close together in, in a relatively small space, you're going to need to get a vaccine. I, I think that's where you'll first start to see mandates. And, you know, the EEOC in their language has said that the um, firms have the right to uh, demand testing for COVID. Um, I don't know if they have a, a law outstanding about whether firms have the right to uh, terminate someone who doesn't get a vaccine. Um, but I imagine a world where they'll have a, a nurse on campus at work and they will demand it. And if they don't, they'll fire people. Um, do you think that's an appropriate approach for firms to do? Yes, I think it's an appropriate approach for hospitals to do. We do that. You know, we, we ask our healthcare workers to get an influenza vaccine every year. And by healthcare worker, I mean anybody who can walk into the room, whether it's a nurse or doctor or nurse practitioner um, or, or somebody who works in dietary or environmental services. We ask every year for, for those 10,000 people who fall under that category at Children's Hospital Philadelphia to get a vaccine. If they choose not to get an influenza vaccine, they have two weeks of unpaid leave to think about it. If they still choose not to get a vaccine, they're fired because they 
are working around a vulnerable population of hospitalized children. That is the choice they've made, and they, there's a responsibility that comes with that choice. Frankly, I think that's the microcosm of a bigger society. I think you, that to, to live in this society, to benefit from this society, you have to realize that there are many people who can't be vaccinated. There are probably about 500,000 people who generally can't get vaccinated because they're either they're too young or because they're, um, you know, they're on immunosuppressive therapy for their, for their, uh, uh, for their uh, rheumatologic diseases or because they're on uh, chemotherapy for their cancers. So they can't get vaccinated and they depend on the herd to protect them. And you have a responsibility as being part of that herd to protect them as well. I mean, there, were, there was a, uh, in California, associated with a measles outbreak a, a couple of years ago, there was a, a law that was introduced to eliminate the philosophical exemption if, to vaccines, which meant that, that California then was, became a, a state, one of the few states, to not have vaccine exemptions because they never had a religious exemption to vaccination. The boy that turned that tide was a little five-year-old boy whose name was Luke. He was in the induction phase of his, his chemotherapy. And he, he went to those meetings and he sort of stood up on a, a, a high chair so he could reach the microphone. And he basically said, what about me? Um, I depend on you to protect me. I can't be vaccinated. And, and he turned the tide. He was the voice of society. So I think it, it is your responsibility to be vaccinated. Um, you mentioned that there were a number of medical workers who currently work at uh, Penn's Hospital who have not gotten vaccinated. Um, and I, I can't remember if you suggested that they would tend to be more uh, African-American or not. Um, why do you think that members of your hospital staff have refused? Um, and why hasn't the hospital gone the same approach about non-payment and firing for those employees yet? Well, I think until until uh, I, I think the the hospital currently is uncomfortable with with mandating a vaccine for vaccines that are currently approved under emergency use authorization. I, I think it may be a, a legal issue more than anything else. I'm not a lawyer, so I'm, I'm not best able to address that. But um, I think that if licensed. And there's a critical percentage of, of people who choose not to vaccinate who are still going to work around children in our hospital. I think we may get there. We certainly have started those discussions. And why do you think that this um, you've referred to this emergency declaration um, as a causality, um, but the studies have shown that th these vaccines are safe. Why don't why do why do you think they're hiding behind those legal concerns? And well, no, sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm done. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. I, I, if you if you. So why wasn't this a licensed product? Why didn't they just submit it for licensure? It had nothing to do with the size of the studies. I mean, you know, Moderna's study was a 30,000-person study. Johnson & Johnson's was 44,000. Pfizer's was, was 44,000. That's a typical vaccine size study for any pediatric or adult vaccine. And it also wasn't, didn't have anything to do with safety follow-up. I mean, the safety follow-up was two months after the last dose. Any of the severe safety issues that have come up with vaccines are usually apparent within six weeks of a dose. So it wasn't that. It really had more, to, more than anything to do with, with uh, how long this, these vaccines were going to be effective for. And so you knew that the Pfizer vaccine and Moderna vaccines, which were approved basically on December 10th and 17th, um, you knew they were effective for a few months, but you didn't know longer than that. Now we're getting more and more information about that. And we're also looking at, at the, the nature of the immunity that's been induced by those two, two vaccines, and now more with Johnson & Johnson vaccines, where you can see we can feel pretty comfortable, I think, at this point, that immunity will probably last for a few years. I think that's likely. So I think that's why they're going to come back. And uh, and, and submit for uh, a biologics license application and licensure. 
In your opening remarks, you mentioned that um, there are a number of people who are uh, asymptomatic, who've been exposed to the virus and did not express themselves uh, with disease. You mentioned it might be three times as much. In uh, one of our first few weeks on what happens next, we had we discussed with a Stanford medical professional methods to ascertain what that asymptomatic ratio was. There was a study done in, in Santa Clara County uh, where uh, the study was attacked um, because of the method of the study where they asked people to volunteer for antibody testing. And there was a sense that maybe those people that um, volunteered for the test may have felt they had gotten the disease uh, and therefore it wasn't right. Why do you think with this so much on the line as to what that asymptomatic rate is in determining our herd immunity level, why haven't we been able to design a proper survey to determine uh, the asymptomatic rate in the United States? Right, so, so it's not, uh, yeah, I didn't mean to imply that, that when the, the, this roughly 30 million people who now have been tested and found to be infected, that everybody else who was infected um, you know, was asymptomatic. I think, you know, there are some people who just never got tested because they couldn't get tested, couldn't figure out how to get tested, who had mild disease or even moderate disease that just never got tested because they never went to the doctors. Mm -hmm. So so I think when, when we do these sort of antibody surveillance studies, and they started to be done in November uh, in a variety of ways, some better than others. Uh, and the, the better studies, obviously, were the ones where people didn't volunteer, where you just sort of took a swath of people that say walked into a New York grocery store and say, <laughs> just said, we're going to test your blood. And, and that, and at, then in November, that, that number was off, that number of people who were um, tested and found to be infected or reported to be infected was around off by a factor of four. Now it's come down to around a factor of three. But I, the, the, I was on an FDA vaccine advisory committee um, last on March the 5th where we picked the flu strains for next year. And the CDC presented data where they basically said, and this was a, a little while ago, that at least 85 million people were infected. So this is, this is I think, um, it, we have a lot more people who've been exposed to this virus and are now immune to this virus than we ever thought was true initially. How long do you think, um, if you do get exposure to the disease, um, how long do you think you're protecting yourself from it without a vaccine? And uh, can you break it up into people who are asymptomatic, people who have mild symptoms, and people who had severe symptoms? Yeah, so there's been studies done by Shane Crotty and others on the West Coast and with that group um, trying to answer the question, how long does your antibody response last? And they, it, it, and they found that your antibody response after four or five months could decline. But the good news was your so-called memory cells, memory B cells, which are the kind of cells that make antibodies, or memory T cells, T helper cells, which are the kind of cells that help B cells make antibodies, or memory cytotoxic T cells, which are the kind of T cells that kill virus-infected cells, were actually quite long-lived. That's a good sign, because the incubation period of this virus, meaning from when you're exposed to when you develop symptoms, is actually fairly long. It's about six days. It's not like flu or rotavirus where you know the incubation period is only a couple of days and for flu can be as short as 18 hours. So that's plenty of time for activation and differentiation of memory cells to become, for example, antibody secreting cells. It's a good sign. I think as long as you have long-lived T cell responses, and that appears to be true, I think you likely are gonna be protected for years independent of the, the uh, severity of your initial infection. Yeah, that is good news. Um, as you think about it, um, let's say you've been exposed um, and the variant comes through, how do you think about um, whether or not you'll show any symptoms from that variant 
or will that also prevent uh, more severe reactions? And why do we, why do some people have these severe reactions? You're talking from the vaccine or the disease? From the disease. Well, we're, you know, we're an outbreak population. We respond to viruses differently. Um, the, 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 the thing about the variants is that, that if you look, for example, at the South African or Brazilian variant, you're not going to be as protected as well as if you're vaccinated or, or naturally infected as, as you would have had it been either the UK variant or just the, the more common strain that circulates. But, but meaning you, you still could get mild infection or, or low moderate infection, but you're going to be kept out of the hospital and out of the ICU and out of the morgue. And until that line gets crossed, we're not going to need a second generation vaccine. But, you know, we're an outbreak population. Some of us, when we get... Our vaccine, you know, have, um, I did, I mean, with my second dose of mRNA vaccine, I had, you know, had, uh, you know, fever and fatigue and chills for a couple of days, which I treated successfully by constantly whining. Uh, I, I, that works. I'm just throwing that out there. Um, just, just to follow that up, um, the fact that you had this uh, flu-like symptoms after in your second dose of the vaccine, wouldn't you view that as a very good sign? namely that um, your body has built up the antibodies in a reaction for it, it wouldn't you be a lot more nervous if you had no response, that it's not working as effectively? Well, remember, fewer than 50% of people who got either of the two mRNA vaccines um, had side effects. Nonetheless, 95% were effect in, uh, protected. So, so I don't think you have to have side effects in order to be protected. And let's say that you had um, uh, COVID. Um, would you still recommend getting vaccinated? You know, that's a great question. You know, the, the CDC did not draw a line there. I think mostly for programmatic reasons. I thought, I thought it would be very tough to, you know, to add that layer of, of seeing who has antibodies to the virus or not before one gets a vaccine. You could reasonably argue that those people should have been put at the back of the line. Secondly, there have been three preprints that just came out looking at people who were naturally infected who got one dose of vaccine, and they act immunologically as if it's a booster response. So you could also make the argument that one dose would have been enough for people who have been previously infected, but we, we didn't do that. You could reasonably have done that. And let's say you had a severe uh, reaction to the disease the first time. Um, what would you expect the reaction of the, uh, to a vaccine dose? Are you going to be uh, much sicker than otherwise? Do you think as, as, as your disease is more severe, do you expect the reaction to be more severe when you take the, the vaccine? No. I, I mean, if you had severe disease, recovered, and now you're getting a vaccine, no, I don't think so. Yeah. Actually, the, the Donald Trump was an example of that. He had pretty severe disease, and they were considering intubating him at one point. He got a vaccine. He quietly got a vaccine. He and Melania quietly got a vaccine, didn't make much I do about it. I wish they had made more of a, a production about that. Um, but that, he apparently didn't have uh, much in the way of reactions to his, his vaccine. Okay. All right. We're going to move on to our third speaker, Robert Parlberg, who has written a book called Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. Robert, please go ahead. Well, thanks, Larry. Um, my book is about our, our broken food system and one of the messages in the book is to think again about some of the more popular remedies for improving or for fixing our, our food system. What's the evidence that our system is broken? Well, 42% uh, of American adults are now clinically obese, and it's not always been this way. Uh, that's three times as high as it was 
in the 1960s. Now, a number of, of popular suggestions have been made for improving uh, our food system. I'll talk about four of them. One is switching to organically grown food. Second is switching to locally grown food. A third is ending uh, government subsidies for commodities like, uh, like corn. And fourth is putting more supermarkets in, in food deserts uh, that don't have enough supermarkets. And my book shows that these measures would not improve dietary health in America. And in fact, uh, in some instances, they could, they could make dietary health worse. Let's start with organic foods. These are foods that are grown without the use of any synthetic man-made chemicals. Organic farmers are not allowed to use synthetic man-made nitrogen fertilizers. And so they have lower crop yields and higher production costs. And that makes organic products more expensive for consumers. On average, organic produce costs 54% more than conventionally grown produce in the supermarket. So uh, what does this mean? It means if we switched to an entirely organic farming system, America's consumers would have to pay 54% more for fruits and vegetables. Uh, currently, of course, we don't eat enough fruits and vegetables. We're supposed to have five servings a day, but on average, we're consuming fewer than two servings a day. So if the price of fruits and vegetables went up by 54%, our consumption would fall even more and our dietary health would worsen. Of course, advocates for organic products try to claim that these products are more nutritious, but the science just doesn't back that up. It's true that organic milk has 30% more beta carotene than conventional milk, but conventional milk has so little beta carotene that 30% more than almost nothing is still almost nothing. So a switch to organically grown foods would not solve our dietary health problem. Uh, but uh, very few commercial farms are switching to organic production uh, because they don't want to farm without nitrogen fertilizer. Only 2% of farm products in the United States today are organically grown. A second strategy for fixing our broken food system might be to, uh, to switch to locally grown foods. Uh, but this as well would actually worsen dietary health in America because in much of the country, healthy fruits and vegetables cannot be grown at an affordable cost during the winter months. You can live a, a comfortable farm-to-table life year-round if you live in San Diego, but not if you live in Massachusetts like me. You can grow vegetables all year long in Massachusetts in a greenhouse, but that costs much more than bringing them in from California or from Central America. So if we tried to, to do it all locally, the retail price of healthy foods would go up, and once more, consumers uh, would eat less. Uh, now the vision of, of producing our food on small local farms is undeniably appealing. And in New England, where I live, uh, we have large numbers of small local farms selling their products in season through uh, far, farm markets or through CSAs, Community Supported Agriculture. Uh, this is a, it's a valuable social and cultural addition to local communities, but uh, my book says we have to be realistic about how much of our food we can grow this way. If you look at all of the food produced by 
all of the farms in New England. That's large as well as small farms in New England. In the states of Rhode Island, Connecticut, Massachusetts, New Hampshire, Vermont, and Maine combined, it adds up to only 1% of total farm production in the United States. The state of Rhode Island produces only 1% of its own food. So lucky for those, who, for those of us who live in New England, we don't have to rely on locally grown foods. And locally grown foods, a little bit like organic foods, are not taking over the marketplace. They represent less than 2% of all the foods grown in the United States today. Instead of becoming more local, our food supply is becoming more global. We had about 11% of our foods imported in 1990. Now we're up closer to, to 20%. Ending farm subsidies, um, another proposal. That wouldn't improve dietary health either. This is because farm subsidies don't make unhealthy food cheap. They actually make foods like uh, sugar and corn artificially expensive. Now, this is poorly understood by, by most uh, critics of farm subsidies. The federal government makes corn artificially expensive because Congress has enacted a renewable fuel standard that requires one-third of our corn crop be used for uh, ethanol as auto fuel. This pushes up the price of the corn that's uh, remaining to be used for for food. It makes everything from corn syrup, corn chips, and meat from animals fed with corn more expensive, not less expensive. It's a subsidy to the income, income of corn growers. It's not a subsidy that, that makes corn cheap for consumers. The federal government also makes sugar artificially expensive by putting a quota at the border that keeps cheap foreign sugar out of our market. This makes the sugar that we buy here in the United States, 64% more costly than it would be otherwise. That makes obesity-inducing foods more costly rather than artificially cheap. If we remove those subsidies, um, we'd be going in the wrong direction in terms of diet. That doesn't mean these farm subsidies are a good idea. I don't think they are, but they're not making us obese. A fourth proposed remedy to our dietary health problem would be to put more supermarkets into neighborhoods where people today may have only just convenience stores or, or fast food restaurants. These are so-called food deserts. And this is a, a well-intended proposal, but we have an increasing number of studies now that show our problem isn't too little access to healthy food. The problem is too much access to unhealthy food. And supermarkets themselves are filled with unhealthy food. One study found that only about one-third of the beverages and packaged products sold at supermarkets today are healthful. The rest are either ultra-processed or they had too much sugar, salt, and, and fat. The, uh, not just supermarkets. Actually, pharmacies are also a part of this swamp of unhealthy food that, that we're surrounded with. Uh, when I go to my local CVS to fill a prescription, I have to walk through aisles filled with candy and chips and soda in order to get to uh, to the prescription counter. So in a single visit, I can both uh, I protect my health and spoil my health at the same time. Now, the food companies that design all these uh, foods to be irresistible, they design them to be overconsumed. They say it's our responsibility if we consume too much. 
But uh, stop and think about that. Uh, remember that obesity in America has tripled since the 1960s. Are eaters today really three times as irresponsible as they were back then? My book explains that, that they are not. The solution to this problem has to go beyond personal responsibility. It has to include government policies that nudge consumers and food companies in a healthier direction. For example, excise taxes on sugary beverages or nutrition guidance on the front of food packages or guidelines regarding advertising junk food to children. Uh, 18 different countries in Europe have at least one of these policies in place. At the federal level in the United States, we have zero. And European countries have only half the obesity prevalence of the United States. I think these are, these are lessons we can learn from the European approach and take to heart. These are the first steps that we need to take to fix our broken food system. And my, my new book titled Resetting the Table outlines these steps in some detail. Thanks, and I'll turn it back to you, Larry. Hi, great. All right, so um, I'm going to start with your ending, which is um, taxing sugar drinks, for example. Um, that was something that Bloomberg did in New York City, um, but he got very harsh feedback from the population, particularly the African-American population, was very upset about that. Um, how do we think about um, giving the people what they want versus giving people what they should have? Yeah, Bloomberg um, suggested a restriction on the size of beverages. I don't think he wanted nothing sold in more than a 16-ounce portion. He didn't really propose... Uh, uh, an excise tax on sugary drinks in in the city in Manhattan or in the city of New York. The governor of, of governor of New York proposed that, but then dropped the proposal very quickly. Uh, what I propose is the approach that's been taken now by a number of municipalities, uh, and that's an excise tax on sugar sweetened beverages. It was done in Berkeley uh, in 20. 14, and then it was done in Philadelphia, then in San Francisco, in Oakland, in Boulder, Colorado, in Seattle. Uh, and where this tax has been set in place, it has driven down the consumption of sugar-sweetened beverages. It's driven up the consumption of, of bottled water. How, how did these taxes become acceptable? to the population of these cities. In some cases, the tax was enacted by a popular ballot. Uh, in individual consumers aren't as opposed to these kinds of taxes as, of course, some, some lobby groups that can influence city councils or can influence state legislatures or can influence the Congress. If you can do it through a ballot issue, uh, and if you, can, if you can dedicate the revenue from the tax to something that's either health-related or something that will benefit minority communities, uh, that's a good way to get uh, approval for these kinds of measures. Of course, these kinds of measures have only been enacted so far in cities that are heavily democratic, and they've only been enacted uh, with external support, including support from the Bloomberg Foundation, uh, to to run the campaign to win the ballot contest. 
Oh, you mentioned nutritional guidance as well as a possibility. Um, they've we're starting to see nutritional guidance at fast food restaurants and other restaurants for that matter. Um, has that been effective in changing choices uh, of what people order at restaurants when they see the, the calorie count, or do people look at it and just discount it? Well, you're right. We now do have a law requiring calorie counts on on menus in in restaurant chains. It has to be on the menu, or it has to be be on a display board. It has to be visible to to those that are that are buying the foods and these have had some effect. Um, they probably had their greatest effect by nudging the, the providers of these foods to reduce the calorie content. It may not influence the behavior of the customers in these restaurants as much as it influences the behavior of the restaurants that are making up uh, the menus. But in either case, it's a plus, it's a benefit. There is a risk, of course, that only those who are already health conscious and watching their calorie intake are going to be careful observers of, of, the, of the calorie counts on the menus. But the, uh, the restaurant industry fought hard against these calorie counts and delayed them for a number of years, suggesting to me that they knew at least it was going to have an impact on the behavior of their customers. But it, that would be their prediction. So just to kind of follow the logic through, imagine uh, you know, you're at the Cheesecake Factory and you're offering a salad and it's got 1,600 calories or some crazy number of it, right? And so Cheesecake Factory says, oh my God, when I publish the 1,600 calories, um, no one's going to want to eat this salad, so I better change the content of the salad to 1,200. And then when they find out that, in fact, people prefer the 1,600 calorie to the 1,200, isn't the first inning of the, of the game, they change it to a 1,200 calorie uh, salad, but in the second inning, when they find out they preferred the 1,600 calorie, they just shift right back to the 1,600 calorie? Well, we'll have to find out. This new law has only been in place for a couple of years, and we don't have good studies yet, good careful studies of the, the response by the, the food service industry, my guess is you could reduce the, ca the calorie count of most uh, restaurants served salads just by cutting down a little bit on the dressing. Uh, the salad would look the same and it would, it would virtually taste the same and it would be much better for you. I, I have uh, hopes that these kinds of, of informational messages are going to be uh, a good corrective to, to careless behavior on the part of both uh, the food service industry and consumers. But, but back to something else that you started with, and that's nutrition guidance, not just a calorie count, but uh, telling uh, consumers uh, something about the, uh, the, the fat content, the, the protein comment, content, the degree of processing, the salt. Um, these, uh, these are important bits of information that are currently available to U.S. purchasers of packaged food products by looking at the Nutrition Facts Panel, which is usually on the side of the package. It's, it's fine print and small numbers. Uh, you have to work hard to make good use of it. In other countries, including in Europe, they're now requiring nutrition guidance on the front of the package, not on the side of the package. And 
it has to have easily understood at a glance uh, value. Uh, in the UK, they have a traffic light system where you get things colored either red or yellow or green. Uh, if you're a shopper, you don't have to read for for three minutes uh, to find out if you've got too much sodium. You'll just see sodium red, and that's going to tell you that you'd probably be better staying away from that product. I'd like to see I'd like to see a system like this in the United States, either on the front of the packages. Or an alternative approach is a front-of-shelf um, guidance system. We have one. It's called Guiding Stars. It was actually designed by, uh, by a food retailer, uh, the Ahold Dalhaze retail chain. And it gives you either one, two, or three stars, depending upon whether their algorithm finds the food product to be good or better or best for you. And you might be curious... Uh, how honest is this system? Can we really trust a retail chain to, to grade the foods that they're trying to sell to us? Well, when, uh, when one uh, U.S. Uh, chain, Hannaford's, put in this system, they discovered that two-thirds of the packaged food products in the store didn't get any stars at all. So it was an honest system. It did reveal how many of the products being sold in supermarkets have too much processing, too much salt, too much sugar, and too much fat. I, I thought the most interesting or shocking aspect of your book uh, was your discussion about organic food, um, namely that the science that you said showed that organic foods weren't any healthier than uh, those that were not organic. Um, is this widely known? Um, and if so, um, why do... Why do people pay the 54% more for this organic food? Um, and should we have more of a public message to encourage people to stay away from organic foods and save the money, particularly among our, our poor um, citizens? Well, it's, it's widely known among nutrition scientists. but um, I mean, but among nutrition scientists, they also know that Oreos and sugar is, uh, is also bad for you, but you're, re you're requesting that um, society nudge people away from things that they that, that community already knows? Should we be nudging people away from organic foods? Oh, no. Um, organically grown foods are, are just as healthy as conventionally grown foods. There's no health reason to tell people they shouldn't buy. Well, it, it costs 54% more. Should we have advertising saying, save your money, don't buy these organic foods? Well, I don't think so. Uh, I think it's it's up to um, consumers who notice that these foods cost 54% more to make the decision: uh, are they are they getting their money's worth? And that's you know there there's more than one or two reasons why consumers might think they are getting their money's worth. They might think these foods are more nutritious. There's no there's no science to, to support that. But they, not, they might also think, well, maybe they're safer because organic growers don't use synthetic pesticides and maybe um, conventional foods have pesticide residues that I want to stay away from. If they read, uh, if they read the... But you don't believe that, do you? Well, the Food and Drug Administration has studied that very carefully. Toxicologists have studied that very carefully. And the uh, the... 
pesticide residues on conventionally grown foods are so far below the, the tolerance thresholds that are set by these food safety agencies that, um, no, I don't believe that uh, pesticide residues are, are a consumer uh, risk in countries like the United States. They are a risk in developing countries where, where foods are not repeatedly washed uh, before they're uh, put up for sale and where uh, pesticides are not as heavily regulated and the application of pesticides is not as heavily regulated as in the United States and where pesticide use is heavier than in the United States. The United States uh, has reduced its use of insecticides by more than 80% since 1972. Most, most uh, food consumers don't, uh, don't realize that. Most food consumers continue to be uh, frightened away from, from pesticide residues by um, campaigns, um, by advocacy groups. Um, there's an advocacy group called the Environmental Working Group that every year uh, lists what it calls its dirty dozen uh, food products with the, the highest uh, level of pesticide residues. Well, um, the, the levels of residues that they find are so far below the, the tolerance levels, uh, it's, it's hard to describe these products as dirty. They're essentially all clean, and these are just the least perfectly clean. It's a little, it's a little bit, in any collection of food products, one is going to have more pesticide residues than the others, even if most of them have essentially none. So it's a little bit like, like warning swimmers away from uh, the shallow end of a wading pool. But of course, uh, consumers want to do what's best for themselves and their families. And, and they see a group uh, promoting uh, this list of of dirty products, and though they might they might choose not to consume them, I think it would be too bad, since uh, the products include things like spinach, and uh, and strawberries, which are very good for human health. And as I say, we don't we don't consume enough fruit and vegetables right now. We shouldn't be uh, staying away from perfectly healthy uh, fruit. The, the other interesting thing about your book was sort of um, encouraging the use of industrial farms over local farming. Uh, one point that you just reiterated was these industrial farms are, are increasingly more productive, uh, are more productive with fertilizers, are more productive with pesticides, uh, are more productive in creating uh, healthy fruits and vegetables. Um, why is there this natural inclination in opposition to industrial farms, and why do you feel like you're pushing against the trend by articulating the benefits of industrial farms? Well, uh, the label industrial farms uh, is itself something that's um, been created by uh, opponents of using modern science in, in agricultural production. The, the opponents of modern science like traditional farms. They like small, diverse, local, chemical-free uh, traditional farms. Uh, I don't think this is an effective model to employ, uh, in part because of how much more food the marketplace is demanding these days. Right now, American agriculture is producing three times as much 
as it was producing in, in 1940. If we had tried to triple production using the techniques that were available in 1940, we would be doing vastly a greater environmental damage than we're doing today. I mean, we'd already reached the limit of what the methods uh, of the past could, could do safely. Remember, when we expanded traditional production methods onto the drought-prone southern plains in the 1920s, the minute we hit a drought in the 1930s, it created uh, the Dust Bowl, an environmental calamity, 400,000 environmental refugees. We're able to, to avoid that today because we've used nitrogen fertilizer, hybrid seeds, uh, new equipment that can plant seeds without plowing. Uh, we have GPS-guided uh, systems that uh, tell equipment very precisely in the field when to use more and when to use less of, of inputs like lime and fertilizer. We have GPS systems now that can tell a roving piece of equipment in the field exactly where it is down to less than one inch. Uh, and these systems are linked up to, to digital soil maps and to computer-operated variable application equipment that ensures we use uh, only as much fertilizer, only as much uh, nitrogen as that one part of the field needs and, and no more. So we've, we've, we haven't increased fertilizer use in the United States since 1981, even though we've increased production by 46%. Pesticide use today is 18% lower than it was in 1981, even though we've increased production by 46%. I think that, uh, uh, that industrial farms still do environmental damage. They still do too much environmental damage. But it's because of the quantity, quantity of food that the market is asking for. It's because of how much they produce. It's not because of how they produce it. Okay. Uh, thank you, Robert. I'm now going to go to our final speaker, uh, Mark Bauerlein, who's going to speak about his book, uh, The Dumbest Generation. Mark, please go ahead. Hello there. Uh, you started by talking about uh, hoping to end on a note of hope, and, and I'm sorry, Larry, I actually don't have very much hope when I look at what has been going on with American youth in the last 20 years. We conducted a broad social human experiment back in the 2000 aughts in which what we did was we turned over an entire generation of teenagers and younger to screens. Uh, we let them avoid uh, the books, newspapers, magazines. We let them read a lot less literature than they had before. They were watching fewer TV shows that would pump some adult content into their lives. Uh, they pretty much came to ignore history and civics even more than they had before, and they plunged into one another. It was a peer-to-peer -peer contact world that millennials occupied when they were 15 years old. They had, by 2010, they were texting like crazy. They had Twitter had taken off, Facebook, of course. MySpace was still there. It was going down, but they were watching videos and they had the YouTube making videos. Remember the 
first motto for YouTube was broadcast yourself. They were walking around with 250 pictures of themselves in their pockets at all times. They were communicating through the night by texting and instant messaging and everything else. 85% of them had a cell phone by, by 2015. And what we see today is that these 15-year-olds, 10-year-olds, who were Googling out in their formative years, something that had never happened before, they're now 30 years old, late 20s, early 30s. And what do we see has happened since then? Well, maybe some of you don't remember back in 2005, 2006, the boosterism for the millennials was over the top. They were going to be the most connected, aware, globally oriented, highly educated, informed, worldly generation in human history. They were going to, these digital natives, the digital pioneers, were going to show the elders uh, what, what the 21st century was really going to look like. What has happened uh, since then? Well, if you look at academic achievement, uh, let's say SAT scores, ACT scores, NAEP scores, the broad test scores are all down. Reading and writing rates scores have dropped significantly in the last 15 years. And this at a time when young people are actually writing more words than ever before in human history. Well, they're not doing it very well. They're doing it worse than they did 20, 30, 40 years ago. Uh, if you look at their, 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 more of them are going to college, but more and more of them are ending up in remedial classes. When they get to college, many of them are not learning very much at all, according to another test called the Collegiate Learning Assessment. And then when we look at emotional measures of millennials, now that they're 30 years old, we see suicide rates are up, anxiety rates are up, narcissism rates are up, medication is very high among, among young Americans. The misery that you see, the unhappiness they see is widespread. Now part of that is the economic troubles that uh, hit, you know, even 2008, there still hasn't been much uh, recovery in many places. They have uh, enormous student debt, uh, they bounce around from job to job, often doing contract work for businesses. Benefits are hard. Rent, living expenses are very difficult in the hot places they want to live, like uh, Williamsburg on Long Island and, and uh, Austin and Boulder and Madison and the Bay Area. Uh, they don't settle down. Uh, they don't get married nearly as early as previous generations had. They don't have the stability of family life and they're they're not doing well and my contention is that one reason the misery is up is that a lot of these are the normal tribulations of adulthood that have hit but because they were locked on screens in those formative years they didn't acquire the intellectual equipment to handle a lot of them they didn't read enough novels they didn't learn a lot enough about history. They would talk a lot less about social justice and racial justice if they had any sense of the American and the world past. And so what happens with them is they, they are being hit by 
by pressures, emotional, psychological, caused by financial, economic, career pressures, and they're not handling them very well, and it's too late. It's too late for them. They're, they're not going to sit down and start reading now. They're not going to go learn more history now. They have to. They're hitting middle age, and it's time to start understanding their lives in a meaningful context, and they don't have it. They don't go to church. Most of them don't have any organized religion uh, in any meaningful, concrete way. And so uh, I used to believe that Generation Z, the generation behind them, is going to reject the millennial outlook, as every generation kind of rejects the previous one. But I'm seeing indications now that this isn't really uh, the case. The Generation Z are showing high rates of loneliness and difficulty, uh, the same as the millennials do. This is uh, widespread speculation. I can give numbers on, on the data on these downward trends. But because this is a topic that hits so many people so directly, I think I would like to stop there and open it up for questions. Okay. Um, we had Don Hirsch on the call a couple of weeks ago, uh, and he was speaking about the importance of learning cultural literacy uh, to all read the same books, uh, to be exposed to one American culture, um, and that the progressive movement is opposed to that. Um, do you think that this undermining of cultural literacy is part of the story, or do you think it has more to do with the uh, screen time? It is most definitely part of the story. I should say I'm on the board of the Core Knowledge Foundation, which is Don, Don Hirsch's uh, uh, education organization. Let's just talk, talk about multiculturalism. Uh, multiculturalism promised to be, in the 1980s, a rich diversification of our sense of the past, that we would read more novels by women and by people of color that we would understand the perspectives of historical events from the victims, not just the conquerors. And that this, again, would be a historiographical project that would give people, again, a fuller, richer sense of the past. Well, multiculturalism in practice is actually an eradication of a sense of any past. It is completely present-oriented, and it is focused on future change. It is not about an in-depth study of the past. I've been part of many debates over this. I've been in many formations of standards in, in, in like the literary canon, uh, working with states and projects like Common Core and with the College Board. And it is very clear now that students who graduate from high school don't know anything more about African-American literature than they did 30 years ago. In fact, I, I would say they, they know less. And what does this mean in terms of the youth? It means you're coming into the world, you're coming into a universe, and the past offers nothing. In fact, the past is a time of guilt. A past is a time of injustice. Your parents and grandparents belonged to a world that wasn't fair. This is a terrible thing to give to young people, it sort of tells you you're on your own. There is no legacy 
that can inspire you. There is no heroism in the past on which you can build your own characters. It's all future-oriented. It's utopian. It is progressivist. And the Internet has fed into this by giving them a fully present-oriented world of social contact with one another. It has only aggravated the elimination of the voices of the dead in these young people's lives. You mentioned that um, kids don't read, uh, and particularly they don't read literature, and they won't read literature once they go out of school. Um, why do you think, as a, you're obviously an English professor, why do you think that uh, reading literature will help uh, solve some of these problems like emotions, suicide, anxiety, reductions in medication, et cetera? Unhappiness. Well, if you talk to a reader, those few who are left and the many who were there in earlier times, you know, in the 1960s and 70s when the baby boomers hit college campuses, English was one of the most popular majors on campus. I mean, it, it, it got about one out of 12 students, graduates of four-year colleges majored in English. Now, one reason was they came into college from high school having had a high school English teacher who had them read Hemingway. And the guys loved Hemingway. The, the girls read Jane Austen. And they found Elizabeth Bennett in Jane Austen a role model. Gone with the wind, many young women found that Scarlett O'Hara was a role model, an inspiring character. For them, so the novels actually played in prior times. Novels played an important mode of moral instruction for young people. They learned young people learned how to be young adults, how to be women and men by reading novels. They learned about the nature of people. They started to understand human motive is a complicated thing. What looks like a villain isn't always a villain. Some dumb thing that someone does actually could have a very complicated history to it. And, the, and novels were particularly good at exploring human motive in that way. And so this was the mode of identification and, again, moral instruction that was very important for young people as they started thinking outside the home, beyond their own families. And so when they stopped reading, what did they replace it with? These stupid movies that Hollywood gives them now, these Marvel super, idiotic Marvel superhero movies, is that supposed to replace Philip Marlowe? I mean, is, is that supposed to uh, re replace Gatsby in, our, in sort of understanding what an adult sense of things is about? No, no, this is a terrible decline. And our culture is in the midst of the rising stupidity and vulgarity. It's everywhere. I mean, the, the, the length, you go ahead and do a Lexile score of the script of a current Hollywood film versus the script of a Hollywood film in 1973. You will see a sharp decline. Look at the magazines, I mean, everything. You, 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 see, you see this. I mean, you can't even turn on the TV and watch the commercials. You say, why are they showing people being so stupid? 
But this is the world. This is the media immersion that young people have today. And remember, when you're 17 years old, they're communicating with the 17-year-olds all the time now. Peer pressure has never been so high. Peer, peer imitation never been so high as it is now. And we've got to have more adult intervention to show them how to grow up. This is the problem with boys who grow up without fathers. In particular, there's a, this is a real problem. They take their lessons in manhood from one another, and that's not good. Um, we had uh, some discussions in the last few weeks. Um, we worked with Arnold Weinstein at Brown. Uh, he discussed uh, the censoring of Huckleberry Finn as no longer being in the syllabus. Um, Elizabeth Alka from the University of Richmond, when I discussed Gone with the Wind, she said that book um, – could not be taught uh, in American classrooms today. And then last week, uh, David Grazian said that um, he would not teach Bonfire of the Vanities because of uh, certain racial dialects use. Um, what are your thoughts on censoring of certain materials from the classroom? Um, Don Hirsch thought that he didn't really seem to care if Huckleberry Finn was eliminated, as long as we all found another text to read that was identical uh, and we could have a common literacy. What is your view on censoring um, which books to be taught in American classrooms? Oh, well, I'm always suspicious of the process. And when you see Huck Finn uh, under, under the act, you've got to wonder, Okay, what, what is the motivation here? What are we trying to protect people from? This, to me, is sensitivity taken way too far. And it also is to forget that a lot of art, a lot of literature, music, is just as prone to bad ideas and bad images and bad feelings as human beings are. I mean, one of the masterpieces of the silent era is D.W. Griffith's The Birth of a Nation. Griffith, what Griffith did there is technically and aesthetically spectacular. He is one of the great pioneers. And yet the film has an abominable moral message. The nation, which is celebrated there, is the Ku Klux Klan, which is founded right after the war, ended in 1865. It was abolished a few years later. It didn't come back until 1915. But the distinction between aesthetic value and moral meaning is something that has to be respected. And we don't want to deprive young people of aesthetic brilliance because there could be bad moral messages here. A year later, Griffith did a film called Intolerance, which is the exact opposite message of racism and, and uh, negrophobia, as it was called back then. So the, uh, the point I was, I, I, again, it's, it's, it's a tricky, it's not like I'm going to stand or fall on Huck Finn, you must teach Huck Finn. No. But what I will stand or fall on is the subjugation of aesthetic and technical mastery to moral and political dogmas. 
I think Richard Wagner is one of the great geniuses of music, and he's going to be around forever. But he was a horrible person, and there are some bad messages in that music. So be it. You know, um, you in your book, you mentioned that uh, it seems like every generation thinks that the next generation is heading in the wrong direction. Um, let, let, let me, let me say one thing. Let, let, let me yeah. add, add one thing to that point. In my experience, the people who call for the censoring or the judgment of the fitness of things are very often the very last people you want to have that power. Um, just going back to my last question, what do you think about um, every generation thinks the next generation is going down the wrong path? Um, why, why do you think that um, you're just not an angry old man complaining about the next generation? Why, why do you think your attacks um, or this, this older generation's attacks is more legitimate than the past? Well, Larry, I, I am a grumpy old man. Uh, that's I don't doubt it. In fact, in fact, this is the responsibility of the elders in any society to chastise the young. They're adolescents. They're going to be adolescents, and they need to be told, knock it off, straighten up, fly right. And that's a responsibility the elders have. Now, it is also the responsibility of the young to fight back and say, oh, there's stuff going on that you don't understand. You're a little behind the times on things happening. You know, some tension between the generations is a healthy thing for a society. We are now in a condition where all the elders in the education and cultural spheres, because they're so afraid of sounding old-fashioned or conservative or reactionary or get-off-my-lawn types, they want to be hip to all the new things. They don't want to criticize the young for their cultural choices, their leisure habits. That's one problem on the side of the elders. That's why I have one chapter in The Dumbest Generation was called The Betrayal of the Mentors. A book I have coming out begins with the sentence, what have we done to them? So the, but the problem with the young right now is you guys are irrelevant. We don't even bother debating you. I mean, in the 60s with the youth movement, a guy like Tom Hayden, the head of SDS in the early 60s, they couldn't stop talking about the elders. They were fixated on all the things the elders were wrong about. The millennials, they're not fixated on what the elders want. They just say, you're irrelevant. You're old. You're, you're, you, you don't apply anymore. This is a very unhealthy condition. Now, for those who say, ah, oh, this is just the old thing. They complained about Elvis and comic books too. I would say, wait a minute. Weren't you guys who said that the digital age is a revolution? Weren't you guys claiming that the advent of the iPhone is, you know, the equivalent of Gutenberg? Isn't this the electronic word, something on the order of the very invention of writing? And now when people like me, a cultural conservative and education conservative, as Don Hirsch is as well, Don's a liberal Democrat, but an education conservative, he calls himself that. So when people like us say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, what are you doing here? Slow down. This is bad. You can't dispense with the past like this. Then, I mean, you claim you're radical revolutionaries, and then when we say, whoa, 
you say, hey, lighten up. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, guys. You can't have it both ways. Um, you know, you talk about the role of Facebook, social media, texting between kids um, as both being as being very problematic. Um, is there anything we can do about it, or is that um, has that train left the station? It, 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 Larry, it's all over. It's the, decline, the de, it's not the decline of Western civilization. We're done. It, it, the life of the mind, uh, the induction of the genera of the rising generation into the death that has been thought and said. I, I think we, you know, we we had two thousand years of that. It was a pretty good run. You know, the humanities, the cultivation of humanitas, uh, that that wasn't bad. But there is regress as well as progress. And we're we're at a we're 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 hitting a dark age, and and, and the and the, uh, uh, the the main characteristic of this dark age is it's so bright, it's so loud, it's so nonstop. I wish we could have a little silence and quietude, and and dark for a little while, so that people might be able to contemplate. We might be able to think. I've got to go to the airport in a few minutes. And I'm going to go to that airport, and there is not going to be a single quiet spot in that entire airport. There will be nowhere where there isn't crappy pop music playing, where, where CNN isn't blathering on on, on a screen, uh, yeah. where, where uh, you know, the whole thing. You mentioned um, religion as being on the decline um, and maybe a causality of why uh, we're finding our lives less meaningful. Um, do you see any way that the decline in religiosity uh, and organized religion will will turn up? And I mean, also in Europe, it's it's well, much worse than in the United States, and we remain yeah. the most religious country. What? How do you think about the role of religion in this story? Well, Larry, religion, organized religion is going down. You know, the 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 phenomenon of the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, keeps rising. But Larry, religiosity is up. Woke, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, racial justice, social justice, these are religious substitutes. They have dogmas, and they are applied with all the ferocity of a 17th century Puritan. This is what happens to people when you take away from them any transcendent horizon, when you don't give them an organized faith, when you don't provide for them a model of history. I mean, Christianity has a model of history. It has a beginning, a middle, and, and an end. Marxism has a model of history, too. It's teleological just as much. And so we see the return of socialism taking place, although it's a pretty uh, unthought-out socialism. Uh, this is a place for millennials to find a meaning in life, to find a purpose to which they might commit themselves, something that would give a moral structure to their their daily activities. So the uh, the fervor is out there. I think it is going in a very very bad direction. I mean, they are 
very much in favor of cancel culture. Millennials show much higher rates of being in favor of that than older age groups. It is very much of a youth-inspired phenomenon, and it's dangerous. All right, this is the part of the show where we discuss uh, optimism. Um, Mark, I recognize that you've just given a pretty negative speech, but, um, and you open by saying you're not optimistic. But if you were to be optimistic, what would you be optimistic about? Well, Larry, we have to act optimistic. I mean, we have to behave in an optimistic way. We can't give in to pessimism and simply withdraw. I mean, I, I have students, young people, write to me. Are you still thinking we're the dumbest generation, blah, blah? And I argue with them. I answer everyone. If you're going to write a book with a title that insults 93 million Americans, you got to stand up and face the music. <laughs> so I, I've answered thousands of emails over the years and responded to to every query. I've given lectures and stood up and been booed by the kids, and I we, we, we continue and talk. You have to give them now. Those give me optimism because after we get beyond in, in the emails, after I get beyond the four-letter words and the accusations, and I actually respond to them, and they're surprised, and they they respond back, and we actually have a good exchange. And sometimes I say to them, you know, you you got me on that point. I overplayed that. You, you, you're right. I, I was wrong there. That's a very good outcome. That makes me, to have a young person be an exception to everything I've said. That's that's ideal. Those are moments that give me optimism, and I have to act that way all the time. You know, I, I, I taught until last year. I just retired last year. I kept teaching the students as if I really cared. I cared about their minds. I wanted them to walk away more educated, uh, more grounded than they were before they entered the class. So it, it, to, to me, it's, you know, what are you going to do? What are you going to do? I'm going to do exactly what I've always been doing, trying to spread the word of great books, high art, high culture, and tell the kids, you guys, this stuff here, the opening five minutes of Tristan is so much better than that crappy hip-hop music you're listening to. I tell them this, straight up. <laughs> so uh, this, this, is, this is my, uh, my, my uh, Thank so, you. So I, we act that way. Let me try uh, some of our other speakers. Uh, Robert Powerburg, what, uh, what are you optimistic about? Okay, am I unmuted? Yes. Okay, I'm, uh, I'm optimistic about uh, replacing some of the meat products in our diet with plant-based imitation meats. Uh, Americans are eating five times as much real meat today as they were in 1940. This is bad for our personal health. It's bad for the environment. It's bad for the climate. And it's often bad for the welfare of the animals, given how some of them are raised in excessive confinement. But in the last several years, convincing plant-based imitation birders, in particular, have come uh, onto the market. And Consumption is now increasing rapidly. The Impossible Foods Company increased its production of Impossible Burgers six-fold last year, and they cut the price to accelerate the, the uptake. Uh, these, um, these Impossible Burgers have a, a life cycle impact on the climate 
that's 90% smaller than a regular beef patty. So this is good for the environment. It's a good for it's also good for human health. It's good for our medical health because the animals aren't being given antibiotics. There aren't any animals. It's an animal-free uh, meat meat product, and it's good for the welfare of the animals. So uh, the fashion industry has learned to make imitation fur. The shoe industry has learned to make imitation leather. Uh, I'm glad that food companies are now learning to make uh, convincing imitation meats. And where this is going is explained in my new book titled Resetting the Table, Straight Talk About the Food We Grow and Eat. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Paul Offit, uh, what are you optimistic about? Well, I, I think that, that um, the, the only way out of this pandemic is with a vaccine. I mean, that's clear. The science is clear. We're not going to have, enough, you know, despite what Scott Atlas said as an advisor to uh, Donald Trump, Natural infection has never, ever eliminated any virus, ever, and it's not going to eliminate this one. So it, vaccines are our way out. So vaccines, I think, are going to be the hero of the story. And I think a lot of people are going to stand up for vaccines. And, and, and I, I do think that as we move forward on this, if there's a critical segment of the population that's, that's choosing not to get it, that, that war, I think, ultimately will be won by good science. I think, I, I think in the end, good science always wins. I guess I'll, I'll end with this story. I mean, it's the Galileo story. I mean, Galileo believed correctly that the earth revolved around the sun, not the other way around, and that the earth, therefore, wasn't the center of the firmament, as stated by, um, you know, in the Bible. So, so he was, you know, held up in front of a, a, a tribunal, a, a, a religious tribunal, where, you know, he was censured, basically, and as he walked away in chains, he looked back at the people who had judged him, and he said, referring to the earth and presumably in Italian, it still moves. I mean, you can put me in chains, but it doesn't matter. <laughs> the, the, the science when this is clear, and the science here is clear. So I do think science in the end wins out. Maybe just as one follow-up on that, um, when can we just take off our masks? Assume uh, you've been vaccinated. Um, when, when do you see... Uh, end of masking and social distancing. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure what, where the line gets crossed, but I mean, I'm fully vaccinated. I still mask when I'm in public because one, vaccines are not 100% effective. They're 95% effective. I may be that one in 20 that, that gets infected or gets sick even. So um, I think we'll get to the point where the number of cases and hospitalizations and deaths is so low that we feel that the, the, it's, a, it's a risk worth taking. We're, we're, I mean, influenza two years ago, you know, killed 20,000 people. The year before that, it killed 60,000 people. If we walked around with masks every winter, um, we would have a lesser instance of that disease. This is true in, in countries that do mask over the winter, like Japan, for example. We don't do that. We're willing to accept that risk. We'll, we'll get to the point where we accept the risk here, too. I'm not sure what that number is, but it'll, I think it'll happen actually in the next few, three or four months. And maybe just one last follow-up. Um, kids going back to school. Um, you know, I think if we, there's, there's a whole, huge cost associated with kids not going to school. Uh, but there's a benefit of kids not going to school because they don't get sick or transmit the disease. How do you feel that, that uh, decision or society's decision to encourage and demand that, that children go back into an in-room classroom? I think kids need to go back to school now. Uh, I mean, it, it's the, uh, I, I'm a little upset, frankly, at the teachers' uh, unions that keep pushing back on this as if they're looking for some sort of zero-risk moment. I mean, if they consider themselves essential workers, and they are, 
essential workers should work and and uh, you don't need to be vaccinated you can still mask and at some level social distance and it uh, you know it, it's there's so much loss here one for young children distance learning does not work nearly as well as on-site learning too at least in Philadelphia it's the only decent meal kids get during the day the, the instance of child abuse in, in Philadelphia has dropped to zero it's not because it's dropped to zero it's because child abuse is usually picked up in the school so it, it, it's time to go back to school now and it's just that I mean, parochial schools in Philadelphia are all back uh, and safely back. I, I think we can go back to school. Thank you. All right, that ends this week's program. I just want to plug next week's. Uh, we're going to have Dean Adler speak about uh, the real estate market. Uh, Dean David Weil from Brandeis will speak about his new book, The Fissured Workplace. We'll have uh, University of Chicago professor Casey Mulligan describe how the uh, recent $1.9 trillion stimulus program will undermine work and increase unemployment. Eric Kaufman from the University of London will talk about uh, censoring of conservative ideas on campus. And Paul Embry will talk about his book, The Despised, um, Why British Elites Hate the British Working Class. All right, with that, that ends today's episode. I'd like to thank our speakers for their comments and ideas. Uh, and always to our audience for their participation and, and their listening. Thank you. Uh, that ends today's program. You may disconnect now. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.